0: Hello, this is uh, Aiden from the Almost L.A. Podcast. Just a little warning, this podcast episode is a little bit graphic towards the end, uh, sort of middle to the end probably. So uh, if you don't want to hear anything about murders or anything like that, I would advise not listening. Hello, and welcome to the Almost L.A. Podcast. My name is Aiden.
1: My name is Audra. Hello, Mom. Hello. How's your day? My day has been a little crazy. Okay. But that's it. It's just because uh I went to a hot yoga yesterday for the first time and I can't move. <laughs> oh wow.
0: Did you drive all the way to LA for that or do they have one
1: <laughs> up there in Hicktown? No, one opened up in Hicktown and I was super excited really? and it's yeah. Oh, geez And now I'm now I'm sore.
0: Oh, and now I know what all the people in my high school that are girls that are still living there are doing. Hot yoga.
1: Um <laughs> I hope not. They should be in college. Well,
0: even if if they are in college, now there's hot yoga there. Because there's definitely, I don't think there's one over the hill, if you get my drift.
1: Oh, I have never seen a hot
0: yoga up there. Well, we tried to do this episode two days ago. Three days ago?
1: Yep. Uh, uh, Sunday.
0: So Skype stopped working, just literally stopped working, which is awesome. And we couldn't call each other. We would be sitting on a, a FaceTime call on our phones, Skyping each other off the computer... And we just wouldn't receive any calls. So would you like to explain why that happened, mother?
1: <laughs> Wait, it sounds like you're blaming me. <laughs> <laughs> not at all, not
0: at all. But just give them a little uh, understanding. I don't
1: know. I'm not very computer savvy, and I needed to do an update, because mm-hmm. Mojave switched to Catalina on a yep. Mac Air. Yes, so the biomes yep. changed. And that took me an, a million hours to figure out. But we're fine now. We're good.
0: So today's episode is about...
1: I'm calling it the curse of Mulholland Drive right because I said earlier, I am creating a legend of a curse that Mulholland Drive is cursed.
0: right. And, and this origin is the story fir- this is starting, is starting first here Scientifically proven curse. Yes this one's actually real. So let's,
1: yeah, this is let's real. dive in. Okay All right. So on December 27th, 1924, the new Mulholland Highway had its grand opening with a big multi-town celebration. The 33-mile drive was built to link the city of L.A. and Hollywood area to its pastoral outskirts, which is the San Fernando Valley. Calabasas started off the party at 11 a.m. with a Wild West performance and rodeo with the world's greatest writers. Oh, wow. Calabasas is very different now. (laughs) It's where Kim Kardashian lives. (laughs) Yeah. 50 military and civilian airplanes performed a, quote, spectacular aerial demonstration. Uh, Military planes from Cloverfield in San Diego engaged in combat demonstrations, (laughs) which seemed crazy to me, so basically aerial combat at a fair, kind of. Um, More than 50 state and foreign societies with headquarters in Los Angeles had picnics in Calabasas around noon. And as many cars that wanted to come started on Mulholland uh, from Calabasas, and then traveled the whole length of the drive with flags banners uh, arches that were decorated and streamers all along the way so it was decorated the whole 33 miles police trafficked uh throughout the day with all these cars and they kind of made sure everybody was safe
0: directed traffic
1: directed you said
0: police trafficked i don't know if that's i
1: don't
0: know if that's correct
1: (laughs) police directed traffic
0: police cars anyway that was your whole sentence (laughs) thanks
1: um, at 1 p.m., sorry, on i throw ho- you off your rhythm. Yeah, really? What's up, grammar police? Okay, at 1 p.m., on the Hollywood side of the hills, a mammoth parade was on Hollywood Boulevard with 16 bands and military tanks and civilian vehicles, which I'm assuming are, I don't know, just jeeps, Model Ts. I don't know, what do they have in 1924? Um, <laughs> At 2.30 p.m., there was entertainment at the Hollywood Bowl, including celebrities and a bunch of a squadron of airplanes dropped showers of roses from the planes into the bowl, which actually would have been really cool to see. Can you picture that? Yeah. Um, In the evening, the fire department staged a thrilling exhibition of rescue and a leap for life from a six story building off a six story off the Taft building.
0: What is that? You just jump off?
1: I guess if you're, because you know, remember it's 1924, so a lot of buildings would catch on fire a lot, and so if you were stuck on the top levels, you'd have to do that leap of life to save yourself. So they did like a. So they
0: did a for fun. You would jump off of a (laughs) building into a, into a blanket, basically.
1: Yeah, like a you know, like a cartoonish. Save from the fire. Demonstration. And that's why everybody that's what they back de- then
0: was five one <laughs> and dead at twenty five, <laughs> because they it was, you jump off a, buildings for fun. That's the literally the stupidest thing I've ever heard.
1: It's a cool celebration. Come on, get into it. Oh my it.
0: god, that's so dangerous.
1: It was estimated that thirty-two thousand drivers were on the road at a time on opening day, with more the next day. So people were flocking to mulholland to drive and see all the view. Um, Mulholland was honored Mr. Mulholland William Mulholland to the road was named after who we'll talk about in a second was honored that the Drive was named after him but wanted all the accolades to go to the engineer D.L. Rayburn for the magnificent accomplishment so once Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood became the epicenter of car enthusiasm in the 1950s which we've talked about in earlier episodes uh, Mulholland Drive became the destination for everyone with a cool new car And by the late 1960s, the Mulholland scene had become a little more formalized with car racing groups that took over Mulholland. The short section between Laurel Canyon and Coldwater Canyon Boulevards became the place to run, since there weren't many houses nearby and nobody was really bugging anybody. And the racing culture continued until the 70s and into the 80s until police started cracking down um, on the racers as more homes and people were kind of congregating in the area and they started calling the cops. Uh, Now you'll see a lot of weekend warriors up there, like mostly motorcycles, kind of winding through the area. And there's a really popular biker bar called The Rock Store, which is up there on Mulholland, um, which started out as a bootlegger, uh, started by a bootlegger during the Depression and the Prohibition, Um, there was a hot springs there so they built a resort around it and people could go up there and get their booze and in the 60s it started catering to the motorcycle crowd so that's kind of what's going on up there currently.
0: By the way the uh, the racing culture in LA now is all Priuses weaving in and out of traffic on the highways (laughs) going literally 100 miles an hour.
1: Is that what they sound like? Wee. No they
0: don't sound like anything they just go and then they're by you. Oh yeah that's true. Literally died.
1: That's why they need to get a Tesla. Tesla. So Mulholland Drive was named after William Mulholland. He was born in Belfast, Ireland in 1855. And he has yet that, you know, like all kids in the 1800s, ran away from home and, you know, went through jungles, went on ships. So his mother died at seven and his father remarried. And after coming home from school one day with bad grades, his father beat him so badly that he ran away and joined the British merchant navy at age fifteen. Oh
0: my god again. Seriously?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. He went back and forth nineteen times from America on this ship called the Glenifer, which was an early um Benefer name. <laughs>
0: and I knew I knew that was a stupid joke. Oh my That's god. A stupid mom you joke. couldn't even you can't even like um <laughs>
1: Sorry, <laughs> your, the
0: teeing up of your jokes is you can just tell I was like, I was like, oh, that's cool. And then I, the, your voice went up. I was like, oh, my God, <laughs>
1: she's going to say something. Dumb. <laughs> oh my God. OK, after he disembarked, uh. he worked in Ohio for a time and he actually kind of worked a, a couple different places as a laborer all over the Midwest. And then at some point he reconnected with his brother and they snuck aboard a ship in December of 1876, hoping to get to California. They were discovered in Panama and kicked off the ship, and they had to walk 47 miles through the jungle and somehow made it to LA by 1877. (laughs) So I would have loved to have had a GoPro on their head, like going through the jungle to get to LA. That's crazy. The population when he arrived in LA was 9,000 people. Uh, Mulholland started working for the LA Water Company as a a ditch digger and became a self-taught engineer eventually eventually
0: <laughs> you just made a little mistake there with so, your mouth
1: self-taught engineer by the way are you gonna are you gonna criticize me this entire time With you just sit there with your little <laughs> comments
0: sorry also okay. I, I don't like want to get a fight with you everyone that talks about how they get to la is like I don't know. I just, like, moved from Texas and, like, following my dreams. And then these dudes were, like, oh, we, would, like, accidentally got dropped off of Panama in the jungle, and we walked through the jungle yeah. for 50 same miles. With Pan- same with,
1: the, with member Alexander Pantages, yeah. like, was in Panama, ended up, like, traveling through, the you know, the whole country up to Canada and then back down to L.A. It was crazy. Yeah. Um, okay, so he, at the L.A. Water Company, he met Frederick Eaton, And they became buddies. Eaton eventually became mayor of L.A. And Mulholland eventually became the head of the Bureau of Water and Work Supply, which used to be the L.A. Water Company. So Mulholland's village... Wait, how did did
0: he... Okay, so he he walks to L.A. through a jungle, basically. Mm -hmm. But then how does he... There's kind of like a gap here, because he kind of just becomes... Like, he meets the mayor before he's the mayor and then he just becomes the bureau of something and yeah. then he well, like is taking on huge projects for the for LA like how did he get there
1: there there's 9000 people in town I mean, there's
0: like oh. it's like
1: the city of size of the town you grew up in oh. so it's a tiny and he kind of made his way from ditch digger up to learning engineering on his own because yeah. he did he did it for you know years I'd say it's, it's oh. like, I think it, like seven or eight years he was you know worked his kind of way up in the water supply it changed his name because they were building irrigation ditches all through LA mm-hmm. to get water um, and then the Frederick Eaton guy left the water supply but ended up running for mayor because he was helpful with getting the water kind of going in LA as the city started growing and he became mayor. So when they decided to do this huge project, which is called the the aqueduct that I'm going to talk about in a second, they all the people were kind of in place to make this whole thing happen, and they were all friends.
0: So what is that? What is what are the other eight thousand whatever people doing there? If these two dudes, one dude just walks through the jungle gets to LA and becomes like some bureau, <laughs> bureau guy, and then the other he meets the mayor. Are everybody else just like sitting around?
1: Yeah, they're all doing the same thing. They're all they're every farming. single person
0: is a bu- is part of the bureau.
1: No. Are you being purposely difficult? Well, it's better. I feel like it's better if I'm
0: difficult because I'm truly perplexed by this whole You're situation.
1: Confused? Okay. Well, over the course of 10 years, mm-hmm. the city would have grown 9,000 people. So, yes, a lot of prominent people probably started as nothing, became self-taught, moved into government. You know, the town was growing. It, be- it used to be, remember, an adobe, you know, with building with a mission and just native people around and then people started coming to california and started farming or having popping up a little grocery store and then a little you know brothel opens up over here and then the gold rush happens and then people come down from san francisco and they settle and they open businesses and then they're downtown and then they want to spread out and then they go out to hollywood and then movie people come in so then you know there's little businesses and structure kind of starting everywhere and what do you need? Eventually, people need running water. They want a sewer system. They want and so this. So he's there at the beginning of this and b- making a name for himself and moving up in the water company because he's learning how to dig ditches, engineer, put water pipes everywhere, build irrigation, and then he eventually becomes head of this company. And then he's going to build this huge aqueduct, which becomes like the major supply of water for the San Fernando Valley area in L.A. Okay, that Does makes all make sense. sense. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Whew. All right. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> go watch the History Channel on <laughs> <the> <laughs> LA's aqueduct. <touch. laughs> Oops. Okay. Anyway, by the way, let's get to the murder and mayhem I want to talk about because it's Halloween, so hold on. Okay, so now I don't even know where I was. So anyway, with all these people in place, and he wants to make LA into this 20th, 20th century huge city, which is what his kind of vision was for LA... He discovers water in the Owens Valley, um, which was up north from LA. And they used to get a large amount of runoff from this Sierra Nevada mountain range. So the area north of Los Angeles over the hills of San San Fernando Valley was a desert at the time. And he wanted to bring water into the area to make that a farming community and then also bring water into the Los Angeles area for the people that were living over there. So he proposed this aqueduct that he wanted to build, and it was a huge major engineering marvel that was kind of compared to the Panama Canal. Um, Rich bankers went over to San Fernando Valley and bought up all the farms that they could. There was basically two major farm families there. They gave him a ton of money, kicked him out, said this is ours now, and then Mulholland went to the city of LA. And stated that he needed to build a 233 mile aqueduct to irrigate the newly acquired land that they had and he told the LA citizens that they would also be getting water so the LA citizens eventually approved a 23 million dollar bond which would be 1.5 billion dollars today and they started construction on this engineering project okay and eaton comes into play because he was a friend and was the mayor at the time so he kind of also pushed this bond through to get this aqueduct going so it wasn't totally on the up and up but as you'll see uh, they kind of lied their way through the the project so they started construction in 1907 Um, owen Owens Valley residents were kind of lied to by Mulholland. He would tell them that uh, they would only use the unused flows of runoff. So it would leave them with the same amount of water that they'd always have because they were a farming community. So they were convinced that their lives wouldn't change and their water situation wasn't, cha- wasn't going to change. And then he told LA that the aqueduct would actually reach down to LA proper, you know, over the H- Hollywood Hills. So they would actually be able to get water as well. Um, none of this was true basically. So Owens Valley at the time was called the Switzerland of California and because it was green rolling beautiful wonderful hills with farms everywhere uh, and the city of LA thought it was also going to get water but the aqueduct once it was completed stopped at San Fernando Valley which is exactly where it is today. Um, It's in the same place and the water never actually got to the city of LA. The San Fernando Valley at the time was not part of Los Angeles like it is today so they kind of got screwed out of the deal. Really so sucks. in 19, then 1913, the water from Owens Valley, um, reached the reservoir of San Fernando Valley. And this was on a ceremony day that they had where everybody was standing along roads and farmland and kind of all the way stretches from the aqueduct. There was people lined up waiting for the water. They kind of opened the gates and the water came down and, and they all kind of watched it come down this aqueduct into the San Fernando Valley. And Mulholland gave a famous speech that day where he said, quote, there it is, take it which has now become, like, his greedy kind of quote of the day because he was being greedy with the water. So by 1924, Owens Valley had become a desert. Um, The lake had dried up, and the farmers retaliated because they were lied to and lost all their water. And they ended up dynamiting a section of the aqueduct called the Jawbone Canyon, which let water flow back into the valley for a, a little period of time until they fixed it. And by 1927 their bank had collapsed um, due to a bunch of embezzlement that was also taking place because of this whole mess and then the valley's economy eventually collapsed as well leaving the whole territory in complete disarray and so this whole mess was called the california water wars if you want to go read some more about that if my part wasn't clear (laughs) according to aiden (sighs) you and aiden and everybody else can go watch something on the california water wars Right, right right so so then we have this highway that's built to look at the marvelous San Fernando Valley, which is now green and rolling hills and farms, which is basically the new Owens Valley. Okay, And they build this highway so you can see the greenery on one side and the city on the other side. And there's a section of this Mulholland area called the Snake. And here is where you get into the curse that I'm proposing is happening because Mulholland was a liar and maybe a snake mm-hmm. and now there's a snake part of the road it's all coming together you can look at aerial photos online um of this dangerous part of the road it's actually super crazy there's a ton of hairpin turns yeah, all along Mulholland. Yeah. yeah so i can see where it's fun for motorcycles and stuff but no thank you no and i also get car sick, so oh, no, no thank yeah. you
0: there's a there's pictures of like after car crashes uh like a hairpin turn and then you know like that silver thing that's on the side of the road the little bumper
1: the barrier, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And it'll be like completely blown out, and then there's just like Ugh. a little bit of wreckage. The cars just like go over. You're going too yeah, fast those over things a are turn. It's useless. Ugh. It's terrible. So,
1: speaking of that, um, the rusted hulks of cars that fell from the highway decades ago are littered of the floor of Laurel Canyon in this area. And some of these. Are like a five mile hike down this stretch of Mulholland Highway. And there's an estimate of about hundreds and hundreds of cars dating back to the 1950s are down in some of these ravines that are up there in Mulholland, which is fascinating. There's actually a guy, if you Google um, Mulholland Highway Graveyard, I think it's called, a guy did a photo shoot of all these like old burned out cars that have from back to the 50s that are like down this graveyard area of Mulholland, which is actually kind of cool. I think just Google like Mulholland highway graveyard pictures or something like that, and it'll come up. So the hillsides and the ravines up there are very steep, and it's mostly shale, which crumbles under any kind of weight, making it difficult for people to climb out or any vehicle rescue, which is completely impossible at some point. So now they come in with helicopters, but before that, you were just kind of screwed. A lot of people that go up there and get in accidents are ejected from their cars, um, and they find them hundreds of yards away either dead or incapable of like climbing back to their car because of all the shale and then they can barely get the cars out because the vehicles that try to get them out slip and now they have helicopters but it would take hundreds and thousands of dollars i think to kind of evacuate all these cars from the bottom of these hills so the los angeles times wrote of mulholland at one point quote motorists with an eye for architecture will gape at some of the amazing hillside haciendas while geology buffs will find millions of years of mountain history revealed on the roadside cuts but it also warned however quote below many a dead man's curve are the rusting carcasses of abandoned autos so the paper the la paper is littered with articles about mulholland crashes one crash that took place in, the, in 1982, which kind of changed how they started cracking down on these um, very illegal and highly dangerous uh, races up in Mulholland, was on August 15th, 1982, a 12-year-old boy named Louis Friend died on Mulholland when he was ejected from the back of a pickup truck, being driven by an 18-year-old driver, and there was a 16-year-old passenger in the passenger seat. The two teenagers told the police the boy died after he jumped from the truck and was hit by a car, and then the car left the scene. So basically, they said it was a hit-and-run accident. Then a couple days later, after they were questioned, an anonymous call came in, stating that the boys were actually racing up on Mulholland, and the 12-year-old fell out of the pickup truck, because he was just kind of, like, floating around in the back seat while they were in the back of the pickup truck when they were racing. So they re-questioned the boys, and eventually, the 18-year-old driver, um, Elroy, Uh, Matoba was sentenced to three years in prison which is a huge bummer Um, Lewis was one of five deaths on that stretch of Mulholland between Laurel Canyon and Coldwater in the last two years so between 1980 and 82 there were five deaths on just that one little stretch
0: that's not a very long Um, piece of road
1: no certain curves got names from people um, that died on them so dead dead man's curve obviously that area Uh, the sweeper and Carl's Jr. or a couple of the names, the curves up there. There is a parking lot in the area that's known as the Grandstand, where kids watched the drag racing go on. And then after Lewis's death and trial was over, they put in tougher laws. So right now, I believe the maximum you can get is up to a year in jail and a thousand dollar fine if caught racing. And before it was like a slap on the wrist and two hundred and fifty bucks or something. And then you know if you get multiple offenses, it goes up. So the most recent crash up there was uh, Kevin Hart, who was turning on to Mulholland from Malibu. His friend lost control of his 1970 Plymouth Barracuda, and Kevin was seriously injured but is recovering. I guess he has a lot of back issues. But he was also ejected from the car, like most people are. Um, So that's a a bummer from him. And kind of crazy that that stuff is still going on. So I'm going to play a song in a second called Dead Man's Curve, uh, which is not really about Mulholland, but kind of epitomizes the drag racing culture at the time in the 60s. It was written and composed um, by Brian Wilson, Artie Kornfeld, Roger Christian, and Jan Barry of uh, the Jan and Dean group who actually sings it. Wilson's, they, they wrote it at Wilson's mother's house in Santa Monica at the time. And it was part of this whole phenomenon at the time called the Teen Tragedy Songs. So there's a whole period when they talk about drag racing and dying and teenagers falling in love and dying and this whole thing. So it was called Teen Tragedy. And the song is about a guy in a Corvette Stingray who's out for Allegedly Drive. And a ja- driver in a Jaguar, XKE, pulls up and challenges him to a drag race. And eventually, they go through all these places along uh, North Crescent Heights, Doheny, whittier which has like a 90 degree right turn which is a dead dead uh, dead man's curve and appropriately a car goes by aiden's apartment Was a motorcycle (laughs) it was a motorcycle um and then at the end of the song there's like a screech and he skirts around this like dead man's curve and presumably dies so coincidentally jan Barry of jan and dean who sang the song would himself later be involved in a near fatal car incident in 1966 when he crashed his very own Stingray um, into a parked truck on North Whittier Drive near, but not totally on Dead Man's Curve. So I'm going to play Dead Man's Curve. It totally sounds like a Brian Wilson song, doesn't it? Yeah, I know. I'm gonna see if we can hear the screech at the end. Hold on, let me see if I cue it up right. All right. Ready? Look at that, that was almost professional. Mm. That's pretty good. <laughs> there you go. Alright,
0: that's a cool song. I like that.
1: Yeah. Okay. So now we're gonna go onto some gruesome stuff and why it's probably haunted. So on top of all the deaths that have happened up there, and there's been numerous car accident deaths, so the the place is obviously littered with teenagers who have died up there on Mulholland Drive. Um, On January 22, 1948, a couple returning home from a church dance was pulled over on Mulholland Drive by uh, Carl Chessman. He dragged the woman, 17-year-old Mary Alice Meza, a short distance to his vehicle. And her boyfriend then drove away and was pursued by the assailant, and after an unsuccessful attempt to force the male victim off the road, the perpetrator drove Meza to a secluded area where he forced her to engage in oral and anal sex, threatening to kill her boyfriend if she did not comply, and then Chessman terrorized L... You know, he he uh, let her go, thankfully, but Chessman ended up terrorizing L.A. for three weeks in January and was eventually convicted of robbery, kidnapping, and rape, and he died by electric chair. Oof. So that kind of started off a murderous rampage that would then lead to the 60s where this kind of became a dumping site for people because it was so remote and there was not a whole lot of houses up there and it was pretty dark um so on november 16th 1969 jane doe 59 was found the second week of um november obviously on mulholland drive with 150 stab wounds she was, what? F- yeah, she was fully clothed, and her body was discovered in a dense uh, bushland part of Mulholland by a 15-year-old boy who had been out bird watching. So that's a bummer day for that kid. Um, a tree branch had prevented her body from rolling fully down the ravine into a 699-foot deep canyon, and her body was laying against this branch just 15 feet down the ravine. So that kind of was lucky for her because she probably would never would have been found um an autopsy conducted the following morning determined that she had been discovered within 24 to 48 hours of her murder so of that 150 times of her being stabbed she was stabbed in the neck chest and torso with a common pen knife and some of these wounds had severed her carotid artery she had defensive wounds that were also discovered on her hands and it was believed that she had been transported to the location uh, where her body was discarded in an upright position, and that her murderer had been right-handed, and she had not been a victim of robbery or any form of sexual assault prior to her, her murder, and she had no drugs and alcohol in her system when she died. And some speculated at the time that this was another Manson-related murder, um, and possibly in connection with another murder that we'll talk about in a second um, but it turns out it was probably not Manson um, mm-hmm. but people still kind of speculated it that it is you'll see some stuff on the internet that it kind of is linked to her and then luckily uh, for her and her family on June uh, 2015 and Jurvetson was contacted by her friends who had been searching through the national missing and unidentified person system And they noticed kind of a similarity between a contemporary morgue photograph to the the then Jane Doe 59 photographs and drawings of her. And in response to the notification, Anne ended up submitting DNA for comparison to a sample that had been retrieved from a bloodstained bra that belonged to the deceased, which had been uh, stored this whole time. And about a year later, after they got all that stuff back on uh, in April of 2016, a formal announcement was made that the body had been conclusively, aden- conclusively identified as th- that of her sister, Rete Sylvia Jervison. And she was a 19 year old native of Montreal who had been living in Los Angeles for just a few weeks. I think like three weeks before she was murdered. That's a bummer. Yeah. Reit had met a man that she said, quote, looked like Jim Morrison. And she had decided to meet him in Los Angeles. So she was working at a coffee shop in Montreal. And this guy came in when she was working at the coffee shop. And he was was flirting with her and said, hey, you should meet me in L.A. And so she that's what she did. She just took off and she ended up in L.A. And she stayed in an apartment for a little bit that the police ended up eventually finding out where she stayed um, because of some postcards that she sent to her mom and her sister. Um, But she was there for such a brief amount of time that the people that they kind of interviewed, didn't know who she was, didn't know, you know, didn't really know much about her. And so when she disappeared, they didn't think anything of it. So when she did write those postcards, um, she described that her life in general in Los Angeles was, to her, you know, was okay. She wasn't raving about it. It didn't sound like, but she said she was fine. And she was also encouraging her parents to maintain contact with her via, like, postcards or letters or whatever. And she also sent a close friend of hers Uh, a postcard stating the same thing. And this was the final contact that she had with her family and friends. Um, Her family, unfortunately did not report her missing as they had known that she was adventurous. And, you know, when she came later in her teenage years, she just kind of liked to take off and do her own thing. And she was kind of a free spirit. And remember it was 1969 at the time. Um, And they just assumed that she was making a new life for herself. So, They tried to make contact with her throughout the years, um, with, you know, nothing happening. And, um, she, her sister recalled, you know, that they were always kind of hoping that she would find them and kind of get back in touch with them. And they said at the time, you know, in the late sixties, they would have, would have had no idea how to find somebody in the the States. So they just kind of dropped it. Um, So they figured out who she was, and that gave her some, you know, closure for the family. And unfortunately, they they still don't know who her murderer was. What's an unsolved um, crime at this time. So in December of 1969, December 31st, Marina Hub, which is H-A-B-E. It's a German pronunciation. I looked it up, everybody. It's Hub. And she was a 17-year-old daughter of a Hollywood screenwriter, and her mom was an actress. And she was home on break from the University of Hawaii, and she decided to go on a date with a family friend, who she kind of hung out with, I guess, when she came home on breaks. And she came home from the, the, uh, a date, and she was parking in her driveway, and she put her car in park, and her car was shut, and she was kidnapped. Her mother actually saw a black car speeding away when she looked out the window but never actually saw her daughter it was just her car was sitting in the driveway um so she was actually found her body was found on new year's day and she was 30 feet down a slope off of mulholland by beaumont drive she had six stab wounds to her neck and she was beaten about the face there was no sexual assault no robbery again and they assumed at the time that she was most likely taken to be raped but because she fought back he just let it go and and left um but her wallet was with her with nothing taken out of it and they assumed it was an attempted rape because there had been so many rapes occurring in the neighborhood at the time that they just kind of chalked it up to this one went bad which is kind of unfortunate and sounds horrifying to live in that neighborhood yeah (laughs) so (laughs) jeez um, again, it was speculated that she might have been one of Manson's murders. Um, they were trying to always pinpoint it to him. I think at this time, you know, if you remember from our Manson episode, he was arrested already by August um, of 69. So he was in jail. But people were so afraid of him. And there was so much, like, assaults on women and murders going on in 69, even after he was caught, that they... Thought that he was um, ordering hits on people from jail. So that's why that you keep seeing, like, over and over again, like it could have been a, a Manson murder. So unfortunately, both of these are still unsolved to this day. And if anybody has any information about that, please contact the police. Um, so Jill Barcombe's bod- lifeless body was found off a service road on Mulholland on November 10th, 1977 near marlon brando's home there was actually a film being shot nearby and production was halted for a period of time while they kind of combed the crime scene she was nude and kneeling as if she had been deliberately posed and her skull was crushed and she was strangled three times and raped so she was strangled once with a belt once with her own pantyhose and once with her own pant leg which is bizarre Initially, it was thought she was a victim of the Hillside Strangler, which was a horrific serial killer that was um, around LA at the time. But eventually, it was linked to another serial killer active in the area at the time called the Dating Game Killer, Rodney Alcala. And he was convicted of her death, along with three other women, along with a 12-year-old girl. He is suspected of, sometimes it says 50 up to 100. They have no idea. Um, Barcomb was a runaway from New York and had only been in LA again for three weeks. So these poor girls are coming to LA and just like meeting these horrible men who are obviously crazy and transient and on drugs, I'm assuming, or serial killers. Alcala posed as a photographer to lure young women away to secluded spots. So ladies, never go anywhere with anybody that you don't know who claims to be a photographer in the film industry, in the music business, to shoot a music video, to take pictures of you at four in the morning. Take a friend, get their phone numbers, take a picture of them, get a contract, okay? Yep. Promise me in LA, get information.
0: That is good advice.
1: So, Akala had a collection of over 1,000 photos of women and teenage boys in sexually explicit photos when they caught him. About 250 of these photos they could find the actual people that were in them, and they were alive and well. And the the rest, the eight hundred whatever plus or seven hundred whatever, they have no idea who they are, which is frightening.
0: Seven hundred?
1: Yes. Small too much. So the reason he's called the Dating Game Killer is because he appeared on the show The Dating Game in nineteen seventy eight, which is something I used to watch as a kid. And this is right in the middle of his murder spree. So during his murder spree, he went on a primetime TV show. Where he, so the the gist of this show is there's a female contestant and she is behind a wall with the host of the show and there are three men on the other side of the wall that she can't see and she asks these men questions and when she decides who she likes based off their answers, they get to go on a date at the end of the show. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it'd be questions like, contestant number one, you know, how do you like to have fun or contestant number two, you know, how would you, you know show me romance on our first date or whatever and they would say these silly dumb answers and you know and it'd be all goofy and kind of flirty and then she would pick a guy at the end so she actually picked alcala (laughs) which her name was cheryl bradshaw and after she got face to face with him, so this just shows you how like charismatic some people can be. You know, he she he obviously had the right answer she was looking for. She picked him, and then after the show, when she got face to face with him, he creeped her out so much that she refused to go on the date with him. Wow. Well, that's he is still very alive today. Very telling. Yeah, he is still alive today, and he is on death row.
0: It's he's in S- where San Quentin. What's that prison?
1: I don't know. So that is. This is just a brief view of the stuff that goes up on in Mulholland. So you have your car crashes. You have your dumping ground for serial killers and rapists or homicides or whatever it is. And this has been going on since the 20s, basically, up until currently now. And happy Halloween, everybody. We're going to have more. This was kind of like our first episode into hollywood season or hollywood halloween (laughs) hollywood halloween (laughs) nice nice nice. um okay i'm going to play so clearly Mulholland drive has had a famous movie called Mulholland drive um from by you know david lynch is a david lynch movie and there's been a ton of other movies about the area there's been a lot of songs about the 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 road because it is so famous, I'm going to play us out to the song called Mulholland Drive that was in the movie Mulholland Drive, and it's a little spooky to go with our, our little Hollywood horror Halloween theme. Cool. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. We will have more spooky stuff coming up, hopefully, in the next couple of days, because I have some more stuff to go, and we'll cram it all in before Halloween gets here.